Welcome to Cinema Around the Corner. My name is Ben Wager, along with my co-host, Don Gibson. Hey there. And we are going to take a look at some films this week that were adapted from plays in the 1990s. As you know, we are in a, the middle of a series where, well, actually, we're probably closer to the end of the series, where we're looking at films that have been adapted from very successful plays. And today, we are looking at two very different plays that uh, were turned into very different films. And they have very different reputations. One, amazingly commercially successful. The other one was considered a critic's choice, uh, but not as financially successful. So we're going to open up with that, the critically successful one. It was called Glengarry Glen Ross, which is a play that was turned into a movie in 1992. It was written, the playwright, David Mamet, a very well-respected playwright, known for very intricate dialogue. And he also spent a lot of time building the screenplay, which he liked the screenplay version so much that he reincorporated his play to the screen screenplay version. And so the dialogue that we see now in that play when it's done is actually the dialogue from this film that we're about to talk about. Uh, this film had probably one of the greatest American ensemble casts of any film, the history of cinema in the United States. In wow. A lot of people's opinion. <laughs> Al Pacino, Jack Lemmon, Ed Harris, Alan Arkin, Kevin Spacey, Jonathan Price, although Jonathan is a, is a Welshman. But uh, it is one of the probably the greatest ensemble casts that we've seen uh, in our podcasts, I would say. And it certainly is represented by the quality of the acting that we see in the film. The film is a kind of a snapshot of two days in a very hardcore business of property sales that seems a little sketchy and suspicious, seems to be all about, you know, trying to get these rubes to buy into these uh parcels of property in places like uh, Florida, maybe New Mexico, depending on, you know, how you look at the names of the properties. And they all had, you know, names like Real Rancho and actually Glen Farms, I believe is one of them. And, uh, and that's where the name came from was two different property deals. The film is about the struggling salesmen, some successful salesmen, and their kind of interactions with each other and the pressures that they feel in this job. And to the point where, you know, eventually there's a robbery at the office and there's a whole investigation. And meanwhile, they're still trying to do business and take advantage of the customers that they're trying to sell to. And it's all very sketchy and dark. You see a lot of great dialogue and interaction between the sales guys. It's a very male dominated uh, movie. There's only one female actually spoken uh, dialogue part in the movie. That's just a coat check girl in the Chinese restaurant. And so it's very much a guy flick in that sense. I mean, it, the dialogue is there's tons of profanity and, you know, guys in their faces and a lot of egos and uh, just a lot of ball busting, as they would say. And the cast is, like I said, very good. You know, Kevin Spacey is kind of the company man manager of this of this uh, branch of this property firm. And he's got some kind of connection to the to the owners. And it's like it's almost like a kind of a small business that's kind of turned into a bigger business, but it's still run like a small business with these old sales guys. And there's some young guys and they're trying to slick it up and encourage this branch of sales guys who aren't particularly 
doing well to do better. So they bring in this hotshot guy from downtown to give a speech. And that's Alec Baldwin, who appears in this movie, not for very, not, not a lot of time. And he gives this amazing speech that is considered like, you know, up there with George C. Scott in Patton, which in, in just coincidentally kind of was part of the inspiration for him developing the style of the speech in the movie. You've got to always be closing ABC and there's all and some other acronyms about sales and actually Real companies have used this speech and Alec Baldwin's scene to inspire their own sales forces to, to be better salesmen based off this film, this, this scene in this film. And interestingly enough, David Mamet actually in the 1970s was in a real estate property firm. And this is a lot of what this play and this film are built off of or what happened in his experience being a, kind of the Kevin Spacey person in a office of real estate sales guys. And he was the kind of the office manager giving the lead. The leads are the uh, tips of people filling a card and say, I'm interested. And then they give it to the salespeople to follow up. And so there's hot leads and then there's really dead leads. And and it's, they're always griping about the leads being bad quality. And can we get the Glengarry leads? These are the, the top leads. There's so much tension and hostility between the sales guys and there's jealousy. And then there's also this crime that happens and film just weaves through the story of all these little things in little snippets. And it's just so well done. And the characters are so impactful. Al Pacino, extremely confident in his role as the kind of the head sales guy uh, in this office. And his way of kind of approaching the, the role is a classic Al Pacino role because, you know, you see him when he plays like these cocky, arrogant, guys like in the uh the one with the devil where he's kind of the devil what was the name of that movie do you remember the devil's advocate the devil's advocate yeah you know okay and that's a terrible film too that's not a good yeah well i'm not i'm just saying but that his character in that you you sense a lot of the al pacino vibe now because he takes you know a core part of himself and it's not you know whatever the role is there's al pacino in that role you know and you always get that and so you know he won an Oscar actually you know, that same year against himself in this movie. Actually, I think it was Best Actor. He won uh, Scent of a Woman, I believe. That character has, you know, the Al Pacino-ness of this character and that character, the, the similarity. You just can't take Al Pacino out of any role. It's just not possible. He is just, you know, Al Pacino becomes part of that role. And you really see it in this movie as well. You know, it's maybe dampened down a little bit, but it's still it's still so much there. Kevin Spacey, who plays the office manager, fantastic. Ed Harris, man, he is such a good actor. You know, just such a solid actor who has a lot of intensity in his roles. I've always respected the guy. I actually hung out with him one night in a bar on the uh, upper west side, Alligator Alley on Amsterdam Avenue and 83rd Street. He was there late at night and uh, we had a beer together and played some pool. He's a cool guy. He's a very small person. Wow, what a what a good story to drop. I like it. Yeah, yeah. And then Alan Arkin, kind of the mild-mannered guy, the salesman. But then Jack Lemon, man. Jack Lemon just comes out of nowhere in this film and just blows it out. He's so good in this film, playing this older guy who's ha- he's kind of on a down run. And I'll tell you something, he really knocked it out of the park, I thought. You know, this kind of all the things that are happening in his life, and he still can just turn it on and be this power salesman. You know, he's just riding this roller coaster of ups and downs throughout the movie. It just doesn't end well for him, but it is he has such a good role in this film. Don, did you want to share some of your takes on this? Yeah, well, I, I concur with everything you're saying. I, it's uh, definitely like five great 
actors all basically going to their strengths. Jack Lemmon, I'm never, I, I always kind of drives me a little bit nuts because he's just such a, I don't know, his, his manner drives me crazy, but I totally have to, in this film, boy, does he play the salesman that is just on the downward slide. Uh, some people refer to this film as uh, Death of the Fucking Salesman because yeah, basically... Yeah. The That's same. what they called it on the set. They called That's it. That's what they called it because it's the same thing. It's about salesmen being on, you know, you're making money or you're not making money, but you're all just selling stuff that just isn't real. But uh, you mentioned the profanity. Uh, Fuck has said, I think the number's 138 times. It's a, the amount of swearing in it. I've actually taught this film a couple of times. I've used it in, in comparison with when I teach Death of a Salesman. And I've warned the kids. I said, this film's pretty tiring. You know, they, they, it doesn't stop. And they're, they're just yelling all the time. The kids are like, yeah, whatever. And then half an hour in, they're like, this movie's crazy. So I think it's an amazing film. It's exhausting to watch uh, the Alec Baldwin speech. And it's, I think it's four minutes. He's on screen for four minutes and 45 seconds. And I think he should have got Best Supporting Actor, even though he's on such a brief time. Because his, his speech is so great. And I've read about how they did it. And he only rehearsed it a couple of times. He nailed it every time. And, and then he didn't. There's a couple of lines that he threw in there and that threw Jack Lemmon off. And, and he just, uh, he delivered it so well. There's one bit with brass balls that I think they could have just taken out, but uh, the all, always be closing thing is great. And he says, you know, they have a contest, you know, first prize is an Eldorado Cadillac, a Cadillac. Second prize is uh, steak knives and third prize is you're fired. <laughs> and it's so, it's so effective. And he, and he says, yeah, I've got your attention now. And, and he nails it. And as you said, Ed Harris is the really angry, bitter salesman that doesn't feel like he's properly treated. Alan Arkman is this guy. I love Alan Arkman. He's an underrated actor, plays some really great roles. He was in Catch-22 and I loved him in that. Um, and he plays a guy that's lost his confidence and does it so well. Uh, Kevin Spacey, who we all don't have a very good opinion of these days. This would be a great movie for you to watch because... Uh, you know, you hate him from the first minute you see him, the last minute you see him. So if you don't like him, it's fine. You're watching this film, you won't like him, though he does do the role incredibly well. And the other thing you mentioned, I think is fascinating, the lack of female characters. You said there's just this, you know, woman in a Chinese restaurant that they hang out in. They talk about women a lot. So uh, Jack Lemon's uh, daughter is in the hospital. He's always calling to find out if she's doing. Uh, what's his name? Kevin Spacey's talking about going home uh, to his wife. Al Pacino's making a sale. Uh, and the the guy, what's the guy's name? The guy who makes a sale to the, uh, what's his actor's name? The, oh, Jonathan uh, Price. Yeah, Jonathan Price, a very interesting actor. And then he, so he gets sold, but then he wants to get back out of the deal. And he's talking about, his wife and so there's all these there's references yeah. to women and, and there's a lot of phone calls to wives a lot of yeah and yeah. we're always hearing yeah. about them there's a lot of wives there's a lot of because you know the wives have to sign the contract too and so they all know that they have to bring the wife in on the deal and it's fascinating even so we basically i think this thing's adapted incredibly well because it is really just in the office but they figured out how to move into this restaurant across the street how to move scenes into a car um, and then they have, they show, you know, phone booths and the, the sit scene with the Jack uh, Lemon. That's an added scene that they wanted to show the the what the sit was, the, you know, the, the cell at home. Yeah. And that, that, that's what I was going to mention. So they have a, a sit is, is meeting with a client and obviously trying to get them to, to buy whatever you're selling at the sit. The, the wife signs it and he talks to the wife on the phone. But when he gets there, the husband's there. And it's, it's so that's such an interesting choice that. She's not there. It's this. It's this guy, and he just is not having Jack Lemon. And it's a very depressing scene of Lemon trying to, you know, do this amazing 
uh, sale. And he, once he was known as machine Levine, that's his name is Levine. And he used to sell like a machine and here he's doing all his things. And the guy's just saying, no, no. And then he has to retreat out into the rain. And it's, it, this is not the kind of movie you want to watch. If you're not, if you're looking for a movie to cheer you up, this is definitely no, not, the not movie. Movie. and don't watch it. If you're unemployed or your job, you're struggling at your job. Not, no. not good for that either. You know, no, it's and not. The, you know, the other thing uh, you mentioned, you know, obviously the, the Alec Baldwin speech. It, uh, you don't have time to see the, this movie. Just watching that scene, it's, it's very powerful. The psychological preparation for that, you know, he really did just rehearse one day before with the director and basically gave the exact same effort from the rehearsal. He just nailed it. But the psychological connection that he had with the other actors, they purposely snubbed him and stayed away from him yeah. because they wanted to keep that energy when they had the uh, scene with him. And he actually took that emotion he felt from the snubbing and he put it into the role and he really tried to set off and he was yelling at these guys and, and it really carried over. You know, it was very effective the way they decided to kind of psychologically uh, snub each other uh, from, you know, like nobody spent any time in each other's trailers. You know, there's no befriending of him. And, you know, even to this day, Alec Baldwin says that is the greatest movie he ever experienced he had on, on a film set was working on that film. Yeah. And, uh, and Jack Lemmon, too, has mentioned that this is one of the strongest and most powerful performances that he's been involved with in an ensemble cast. Yeah. And the Baldwin's done variations of this. Like Saturday Night Live, it was like uh, he was a cobbler and they, did a whole parody of the speech, but this is a very well-known speech. And, you know, honestly, just for that scene, uh, it's a, one of the great scenes, I think, in you know American film history. You know, he says these amazing things like, you think you're a good father? Uh, fuck you and go home to your kids. And it was like, what? <laughs> it's so insanely over the top. Yeah. And he says, you don't like it? You don't like it? then quit and leave with a lot of yeah. profanity. A, you know, a lot of movies too, and was Boiler Room was inspired by, you know, this, yeah. um, The Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, it definitely has a legacy too. I mean, it definitely, it changed some of the ways that the, the darkness of a business was, was shown in, in film. 100%, and, yeah. Uh, the, the other thing that I found uh, unusual was the, the lack of, of critical recognition to the to the cast they weren't nobody won an oscar for this i think jack lemon won a national board of review award or something but nobody else really got al pacino was nominated for an oscar for this uh for best supporting actor but he lost to gene hackman in unforgiven which he which he should have because gene hackman was fantastic in that movie unforgiven i mean yeah probably one of his greatest roles but i thought it was the power of such a strong cast kind of diluted anybody from kind of stepping up and 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 maybe just focusing on the recognition if they had given an award to like best ensemble cast this thing would probably be number one in all-time history quite possibly yeah i agree the the acting's incredible so people know mamet for his really everyone talks about you know when you get mamet a dialogue it's this really sharp dialogue where you're constantly interrupting the other person and it puts you totally on the edge and he's not not just this film he had a play called oleana he's done other things too spanish prisoner i'm not this lesser known film with Steve Martin, but he has this really sharp back and forth lines. And there's a sequence with between Ed Harris's character and Alan Arkin, where they're talking about potentially robbing their place they work at to get these leads to get or sell them and make money. And the conversation is just crazy. He says, and so Alan Arkin says, are we talking about this? And then 
you know, Ed Harris supplies, are, are we talking about it? Is it? And are we talking about it? I think we're talking about it. Are, do you think we're talking about it? And it just goes back and forth for like three or four minutes. And Alan Ark is trying to figure out, is he really saying he wants to steal from the company? And he basically keeps repeating the lines back. And it's almost like an Abbott and Costello routine of who's on first. Uh, but it's, it's not funny. It's you're, you're as a viewer, you're like, OK, when is somebody going to actually say what they mean? And that's what Mammoth's all about is interrupting, cutting each other off, making us really nervous and on edge. And he does it throughout the entire film. It's not just that scene, but that scene, it really goes for quite a long time. And Alan Arkin at the end, I don't think he and then and then he says to him, OK, now you're involved in potentially this robbery. If I rob, you're involved. He says, well, I'm not involved. I, I don't want to rob. He says, well, you listen to me and now you're an accessory. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. The prize is like, what? Why are you doing this to me? It's yeah. Just, it's, you're sitting there like, what is going on? But it really makes you very edgy listening to it. Not, I encourage you to, to watch it, but it's, uh, it just is riveting. Yeah. I think that, the, you know, you really understand this twisted psychology of sales guys. You know, it's, it, you know, they're just using this, the sales talk and psychological twisting of each other's words and, and trying to figure out what's going on. And, and, you know, you really kind of understand their operating mode on, on a certain level because they're doing that. Not only do they do it to the clients, but they almost do it to each other as they're trying to, you know, get information out of one another or trying to motivate or manipulate. And it's very interesting because, you know, I actually, in the nineties, I worked for a, a company in Midtown Manhattan that was like, you know, basically a couple of guys started a company that does legal technology kind of fusion. And I was an operations guy, but I had to work closely with the sales guys because the sales guys were selling stuff. And we had to, you know, make sure that they were in the realm of reality of what we could provide the clients. They'll say anything to get the commissions to, you know, and so we'd come in and, and, you know, we had to find that balance. And, you know, some of these guys were just, you know, off the ranch, just selling They'd sell the guy a planet if they thought they could make a commission office. And we're like, yes, we could. Yes, we could do that. I mean, we'd have to look at some, you know, and you're trying to dance between not screwing this guy's commission, but also keeping the client in, in some kind of foundation of reality because the really aggressive sales guys, they don't care. They'll close the deal and then they'll blame operations if anything goes bad. That vibe of these sales guys totally reminded me of the situations that I sometimes had to weave through at this uh at this job that I worked at in the 90s that dealt with huge amounts of money, basically supporting litigation and document imaging and, and coding. And, you know, these guys could make a lot of money if they could sell this stuff. And so the mentality of those sales guys and operations guys were a lot like kind of Kevin Spacey and these sales guys in that office, you know, like, hold on, you know, must be realistic. But also, you know, we wanted to sell because sometimes really gut wrenching to try and reel these guys in a little bit from the reality of what they were speaking to the client. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, you know, America is really based on sales and capitalism and this whole idea of, you know, if you want to do it, you go out and do it. And, you know, it's by your, you know, your ability to, you know, you know, to convince people of your dream and your ideas. And we always hear about whoever has been incredibly successful and how they did it. And that's this idea is, you know, so central to, you know, the, the psyche of this country. And, you know, it's, there's obviously a good side. I mean, if you really work hard and you really do things and, and you really, you know, promote your ideas, then you can get somewhere. But then this is the dark side of the whole thing where, and these aren't necessarily bad guys. They just all want to make the sale so they can, you know, have a better car or whatever it is. And, 
but they've been put in a situation where it's completely dog eat dog and they sort of, you know, chum up to each other and talk a little bit. But as you said, uh, they'll also just contrive whatever lie possible with anybody, including clearly their families, their friends. And it's all about making money. And it's uh, always be closing, always, always be closing. closing. Yeah, and, yeah, and that's yeah. not, not just for a sit. It's for it's for life. You, you, as you bring this up, it, there's definitely, as you say, a, a connection to Americana, you know, in the history of our business principles and practices. And, you know, I think there's also a genre of film that is very much connected to this. I mean, you know, Death of a Salesman is considered oh, yeah. kind of the, the pinnacle of this type of movie that, you know, a lot of other movies kind of the foundation of the influence of that movie carried through the styles of a lot of these movies and they and they took it to another place. But it's always kind of in the foundation of the death of a salesman vibe of, of these movies, you know, and I think that's really interesting. Uh, and there might have been a, a play before Death of a Salesman that that represented this as well. It definitely seems like that film, the pinnacle of, of all these other films, impacts and influences in regards to some of the representation of America that we see in this genre of film. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It, it's it's this thing that uh, we aspire towards, but it's also something that's a little bit terrifying. And it like that, and they do, do develop it really well because the Jack Lemmon character is somebody we actually quite sympathetic for, but he's clearly lived his life this way his whole time, and and he's got the ramifications through. Uh, what's happening with his family and we feel sympathy for him but we also realized that he made all the decisions to to get where he where he is i do want to comment briefly on how well i think this was made from a play into a film you know a couple of things i read about the fact that they wanted is it's set in the winter in the in the play and then they just because of the reality they had to shoot in the summer and they changed the weather to be, you know, this really intense rain, you know, falling all the time, which is a pretty, you know, cliche thing, but they do it really well in this film. And then their office is right beside a train that's a overground train. It you know, causes this constant noise in the background. There's a thunderstorm going on. So it's sort of this mixed sound of the train passing and the, and the thunder. And so they often actually use the train just a close-up of a train going by quickly as a transition shot. So that's the shot they use. Ben mentioned it's the it's one evening and then the next day. And the transition shot is of this train passing. And it works really well because this idea of this train constantly moving as a you know an image, a metaphor for the of the of the salesman is like they just keep going, they got to get where they're going and fast moving, fast moving. Yeah, and it's just relentless and and they they use it a lot. And I think they do it really well. Yeah, it's in the opening credits and the closings. There was a kind of a cheesy eightiness, I thought, to the soundtrack and, and some of the, the graphic choices. That was the only thing that I felt was a little dated, even though it's it's from 1992. There was kind of a like the 80s kind of cheesy suspense vibe. It was a little dated and it didn't really work for me. But otherwise, you know, I thought this was a fantastic movie. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing, actually, they don't they don't use a lot of music in the background through the movie. They have in the credits. But yeah, in the credits, they kind of do this jazzy thing. You know? Yeah, uh, yeah, you know? I agree. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, they don't have like music you know, tense music or, you know, shocking or whatever, no. unsettling music. They just have sound, sounds of rain and thunder and yeah. there's no music. And I, I think I like that choice. Yeah. Um, it might be some in the restaurant in the background, but yeah. Yeah, but it's not. A, yeah. yeah. And the last thing I just want to mention about the style was they, it's all neon in, in the first half of the film. It's either in the, in the restaurant, it's all this red, really bright red color in the background. And then there's a lot of blues when they're outside in phone booths and stuff. And it's this sort of neon... It's not a natural light at all. We have natural light in the in the office when we get back there on the day, but it's pretty harsh. 
And the, the lighting is really, really sets a tone. Uh, the film feeling sort of unrealistic and under neon lights. And, and we, you know, we see things that are very overly red or overly blue. And I, I thought it set the tone of the piece really well for once again, making you a little bit uncomfortable. You know, probably also, you know, coming from a play, you know, the lighting's so important in the play that probably might've bled off into the film and making sure that it captured some of the aspects of the lighting design from the play. I think we can move on. Is there any other final points? You're, you're good, Don. I'm good. All right. Well, I, you know, if you haven't seen it, it's definitely a good movie. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, uh, get a chance. And interestingly enough, as we move into the next film, uh, you know, we talked about very intense dialogue driven uh, writers and, you know, David Mamet's one of those guys, but on the other side of that, you know, we're now going to talk about a guy named Aaron Sorkin, who also is known for intense dialogue driven plays and films. And, you know, in this particular film, I think it's more Aaron Sorkin light because a lot of screenplay was written, co-written with uh, Rob Reiner and also an uncredited writer as well. So you, you don't feel the pure intensity of an Aaron Sorkin film, but let's introduce it. Go ahead, Don. So it's Few Good Men and it's Rob Reiner. And uh, as you said, it's uh, based on an Aaron Sorkin play. And if, if people aren't sure of who he is, uh, he wrote uh, Moneyball, uh, The Social Network. And then recently last year, he did The Trial of Chicago 7. Uh, he wrote it and he also directed it. I don't think he wrote the book Moneyball. No, he wrote the screenplay. Um, so he's so I agree. The comparison with Sorkin and Mammoth is it's a really good thing to do here because they're definitely known for really sharp interactions uh, between characters and definitely a very intense storyline of some kind. Another really comparative point between these two films is the ensemble cast, and I would totally agree that Glenn Gary has a great cast. This one's got a pretty good cast. So it's got uh, Jack Nicholson and Demi Moore. Kevin Bacon, you always like Kevin Bacon in a movie. Uh, he's always there somewhere. And then, of course, Tom Cruise. And then Kevin Pollock. Some people might know him. He's been in many other films, uh, as often as a supporting character. And then J.T. Walsh, who is uh, also a character that's been in many char- uh, films as a supporting character. And then uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. is in this the really brief role. I think it's one of his first films. And then also Kiefer Sutherland. So, I mean, there's just, it's kind of a who's who of, of 1990s American. Christopher Guest, too, also had a, he's the doctor uh, who testifies. Oh, right. The doctor. Yeah. And so, as you said, this film uh, was remarkably successful. It had a budget of 40 million. It made like 250. It was nominated for four Oscars. It actually won none. An interesting thing about the nominations, it was, it was a nominee for Best Picture. It was not nominated for screenwriting. And that is the one thing I would say that is good about this film. We talked about this film last week a little bit in comparison, or the last episode, in comparison to Break Morant, this idea of a trial film, a courtroom drama, and talked about how Few Good Men used many of the ideas that Break Morant did, and it definitely does. It's a very mainstream film that overdoes moments with, you know, Cruz and Demi Moore, et cetera. If I was cringing, I've seen this film obviously before, but I was watching again for this. And I, there's moments in this film, you're like, my goodness, this is a cringeworthy moment. And, and there's many of those. The film is really simple. It's a story of a couple of guys in the army that are uh, Marines. charged. Marines. Marines, sorry. 
military guy, that are charged with the wrongful death of another Marine because they basically harassed him and they tied him up and they... Code red. They gave him a code red. They gave him a code red. It's hazing to the worst degree. So the, the film is really questioning what the military does, how we see that. And this is a military base that's set in Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. So it's very... You know, it's a hot spot and obviously it's a little bit intense down there. And the uh, that tone is set incredibly well through uh, the actors. Uh, Jack Nicholson is does a great job in this as the the, you know, the colonel that uh, knows his business. And in a, a guy like Tom Cruise, who's a, you know, a young and up and coming, you know, Ivy League guy that has no interest in actual service. Those two character types, obviously huge opposition between the two. And so that's really the key of this film is, you know, Tom Cruise has got a father that's passed on and he was a great lawyer and he's living in his shadow and he's trying to find himself. And basically he's coming head to head with this character, um, Colonel Jessup, uh, that's played by uh, Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson is great. I'm sure everybody out there knows you can handle the truth line that Nicholson does. That scene is definitely a great scene in in film. It's, uh, you know, the back and forth between them, the, the climactic scene of him trying to, to admit to something that he can't otherwise prove uh, legally is a really great scene. It's one of those great uh, legal scenes. He does an absolutely marvelous job. You mentioned uh, Gene Hackman winning the uh, Oscar for the role of the sheriff in Unforgiven, which is a great film. He was actually being considered, and I think he actually was asked to do the job to do this role, and he turned it down because because of Unforgiven. So that's you always wonder what these roles would be like with different people in it. It's interesting that you say that because I felt, you know, one of my strongest points in this movie is I think that if they had picked a better actor than Tom Cruise to play that role, I think the, the, it would have been a much better movie, to be honest with you. I felt that he threw away so many lines and the chemistry wasn't good. and Just the little things that make a film a little bit better in regards to the interplay and relationship. Many of the little parts of, of his role that I felt he just kind of just wanted to get to the big stuff. And, you know, a better actor, I think, would have probably taken those parts and, and enhanced the overall value of the role. But, you know, they wouldn't have brought in the dollars, probably, of somebody like Tom Cruise. Yeah, I agree with that. I do think there's an, a structural problem with the story as well. You know, there's a story about, so we have Tom Cruise and Demi Moore in the film. And, you know, so he's the guy, he's a young guy that's been given the case, and it's a big deal case. Demi Moore really wants it, but she's a woman in the military, and obviously she's always being stepped over. This film also compares really well with Glengarry because of the male-dominated narrative. So Demi Moore is in it, but she's basically playing the man's game. And there's a couple of Jack Nicholson's got a pretty couple of pretty awful offensive lines to her about you know her sexualizing her, and I think those are really well done and how she handles it. But the dynamic between her and Tom Cruise, it's just exhausting for me because everyone's like, oh, they're going to love each other and they're going to get together. And Sorkin was and he had an an executive say, well, what's the point of having a woman in the story unless, you know, Hanks is going to have sex with her. And Sorkin was like, how dare you? And this is I'm not going to do that. Tom Cruise, not Tom Hanks. Uh, Not Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks would have been great. (laughs) Tom Cruise. And um, I thought I was the one who usually messed up all the names. No, it's the pronoun- I just get the names wrong. That's what I do. But then there's this scene, you know, they're battling through the court and it's all exhausting and they're coming together as a team. And, and then she pops in and they go out to a crab shack together and they have this great old time as buddies. And there's like slight sexual tension, not 
sort of the Tom Cruise plays it up like you know he wants her and he's like whatever but that whole dynamic for me was just like what is the point of any of this in the story and it's for me you're talking about the choice of Tom Cruise I talk about the choice of Demi Moore I, I talk about the choice of so many things in this film of these these moments so the the guy what's his name the guy that plays the the, the guy that's helping Tom Cruise Kevin Pollock's character yeah, Kevin Pollock, who actually Jason Alexander had the role and then he couldn't do the role because the, the second season of Seinfeld got picked up and so he couldn't do it. So I'd, I'd love to have seen Jason Alexander in this role. There's So he's got this whole issue with these uh, army guys, uh, sorry, uh, Marines, because, you know, he feels like he's the kind of guy that was always maltreated by these. So he's, yeah, the he's, bullying, the bullying thing. Yeah, he's always bullied by these military guys and he hates them. And then, so we have the scene when they're in the courtroom and, and then he and Demi Moore have this conversation and he's, she says, why do you hate them so much? And he's like, because they always bullied me. And then he says, why do you love them so much? And it's this dialogue or this scene. I'm like, Breaker Morant would never have, it just totally sullies what this film could be. I mean, it's interesting, the idea of, you know, hazing that goes wrong, but of course you got a mil military on the front lines, you got to maintain incredible discipline, but it turns into all these sort of snappy, and everyone scenes and everyone says their snappy little lines and it's all sort of cute and polished, but it poppy. It's very poppy. It's a, it's a, pop yeah. Film. I'm like the only thing that could save this movie in my mind would be Tim Curry coming in as the transsexual lawyer for some Cubans. And then that I'm like, okay, this movie's been saved. There you go. Or maybe Hank Azaria doing his, his little accents, you know, you know, I, I will tell you, here's, here's something that I will, I'll throw this out and I don't see what you think about this. I don't think Aaron Sorkin is capable of writing strong dialogue for women. If you look at his catalog, it would be difficult for you to find really strong female roles that are presented in his productions. In my opinion, I, I, just, I just don't think he does it. And I think this is a perfect example of that. I, I just, yeah. I feel like she was a throwaway kind of supporting character. They wanted to put in the tinge of romanticism to it because it's, you know, Demi Moore and Tom Cruise. He didn't, he probably resisted that and said, yeah, whatever, I'll just probably Rob Reiner, the person who pushed him in this direction and wrote some of this stuff because it doesn't really fit into Sorkin's style. Right. And it feels like, you know, it's definitely Sorkin would have had it much more, you know, snarky and cold and sarcastic. And it just felt unnatural. And I don't think Sorkin really invests himself in developing female characters or writing strong dialogue for female characters, because most of his stuff that you see, it's all dominated by male power characters. You, know, you make a great point there, Ben, because, you know, The Social Network, which is a really great film, it's so well constructed. It is you know, based on misogyny and total dismissal of women. And th there's female characters in there. And in the end, but they're very they're small roles. In the end, we understand that in social network, we understand that our main character, Mark Zuckerberg, has no understanding how to talk to women, but he's never done that through developing a female character. He's only done that through Zuckerberg saying stupid things. And I guess yeah. the same thing in Moneyball. Also, newsroom Jeff Daniels, and uh, you know, you have there's it's an ensemble cast with female characters, but they they just don't have the depth or the personality, you know, drive the the show as much as the male roles in, in that series as well. Yeah, that's a good point. I agree. Probably you could say the similar with eh, Mamet. It's 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 similar because he's got you know the majority of his characters are male, and I you know I guess being a man, this is uh, this is what he knows, so that's what he does. But I mean, the interesting thing about this film, Few Good Men, uh, Sorkin, his sister, 
it's based on her. She was a, a lawyer working with the military and she was working in a very similar situation. So she he got a lot of information for the content of the film itself. But as you say, developing a female voice in it, that doesn't happen. Not not a legitimate. No, I totally agree. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I do have to say that that final scene is it's pretty awesome. And especially Nicholson go back and forth with each other in the final, this big climactic scene. And they just so tightly frame Nicholson in this big climax when he's just, you know, he's just like, how dare you challenge me because I'm this ugly person that has to stand on this wall, you know, the wall against the Cubans protecting you and your safe cocktail parties, et cetera. And it's all a little bit trite and a little bit whatever. The boy does Nicholson deliver those lines well. The way he explodes and, you know, what, what happens is incredibly well done. And that's obviously quoted many times when people talk about the film. But it's two hours and 20 minutes. And why, you know, we, we discussed me choosing this film and Ben was like, eh, maybe not because we've done a courtroom with Breaker Morant. I was curious because I wanted to look at the framing and how well it was done. And, you know, actually, I don't think the structure is so terrible how this film is go goes from being a, a play into a film. The first, I don't know, 30 minutes is not in the courtroom at all. It's a developing stories and all these characters. And then we get to the courtroom. So I think they actually did probably you know, uh, adapted very well conceptually to a, a film because it doesn't feel like it's a courtroom play. Definitely brought it out. There's many locations they use and many feels like it's a screenplay, really. And no, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it was flushed out eight months. They, you know, they did yeah. the rewrites for this. So, I mean, it wasn't an easy task. I think they they built a film out of this play and they, they yeah. legitimately turned it, a play into a film and rather than just adapting it. I totally you know, agree. The interesting point that you made about Jack Nicholson's role, he's actually a total, he's, I think he has a total of 10 day shooting on this film. Five million. Five million dollars, which is uh, $500,000 a day he made. This is 30 years ago too, so. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, Cruz made 12 million. He's probably in every scene and shot 130 days, 120 days or whatever. Nicholson said, and this is a great quote, he says, it was worth, they got everything they could out of me. And then later right. on, he, he was really pissed at the at the studio because they actually moved it and opened it against his other film, Hoffa, which is, he, he was the, you know, the star of that film. So I recommend don't watch this film, uh, but what? watch... Don't watch, watch this film? No, don't watch it for a good minutes. It's just a waste of two hours, 20 minutes. Oh, oh no, no, no. It's, it's a pop-friendly film, man. Just don't ask for too much from it. But it's definitely worth seeing. Come on. Rocky Horror. That's a film worth seeing. Why do you always got to bring the Rocky Horror crap back up? Well, because, because it's good banter. No, man. A <laughs> few good bands of film everybody in the family can enjoy. It's a, it's a, great, it's a great flick. You know, it's a pop blockbuster with a great big poppy cast and i think it was just a good film to, but yeah could it have been edited down absolutely but i mean a rob reiner film with an aaron sorkin script it's going to do the job it's going to be entertainment it, you know you get your popcorn and enjoy that film i don't know what now, to say well, i guess we're going to disagree with this but <laughs> we can move on it's okay to disagree you know don you know he tends to be more of an I artist in, I have in, to say when it comes to film the much better film for Demi Moore striptease is a better film oh man much better film oh, yeah I well it depends on what you're interested in with I, I did character development oh is that what it is character <laughs> development that's what you like very yeah. wow Tom Cruise I can't Tom believe Cruise. you're throwing striptease against a few good men I mean I don't that's think better. there's going to be a lot of support for that uh, threw herself maybe, into that role maybe you should do a little street poll because I don't think there's a lot of people going to okay. support that amongst your amongst your film 
uh, <laughs> peers, your film review yeah. peers and, and then, experts in, in the film uh, genre of teaching oh, film. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you're going to... How many times you say film? Yes. And Tom Cruise, I mean, the guy's got an amazing smile. And the fact that he's still doing his own stunts, Mission Impossible, I totally respect him. But he's a god-awful actor. And the only decent film that guy ever made, I would say, is Magnolia. And it's like only a bit part, so... I actually, I thought he was fantastic. The Ben Stiller film, Tropical Thunder. I thought that was, uh, best, I think that was his best role he ever had. When he played, uh, what is it, uh, Harvey, one of those uh, brothers. Yeah, he played the, yeah. Well, uh, all right. I'm not going to say against that one, but it's not. Yeah. Anyway, Jason well, Alexander, it would have been so much better. That would have changed the film. <laughs> I, Kevin Pollock's a solid actor. I, I thought he's, he was, you're right, you're right. Yeah. He's always a good guy, yeah. a supporting guy. Yeah, he's, he's a good, I think he, you know, he, he did what he could with that role. Uh, all right. Well, it's interesting that uh, you know we, when we come down to it, Don prefers striptease as a as a movie over as a film. Good Men, and yes. uh, I don't want to say film too much. I've already said it too much. So I'm <laughs> using movie now. I will say that uh, you know, Feel Good Men's worth. Of, I don't think it holds as well as it used to, but I still enjoy it. And uh, definitely, if that scene comes up in the courtroom with Jack Nicholson, that's just you always watch that. No matter where you're uh, in the film, you start watching, that. knowing that you you're going to get to that that scene it's a never miss fast forward to that scene and skip the rest of the film and you'll be good oh all right so as we move on we're going to be rolling out of this probably film i think we're going to do another episode of the film adaptations as we move into the 2000s but we're going to start thinking about what our next category of uh themes for our film yeah uh, viewer, viewer response give us guidance tell us what yes we please uh the thousands of you who have been listening to our podcast please at C-A-T-C Twitter, and you can share with us some feedback and tell us what you'd be interested in us to kind of look at in the film world, because we would love to hear some feedback. That's always going to be a positive experience for us, regardless of how much you berate Don for the striptease comment. Uh, let's move on and end this baby, because I think we've covered these two films very well. Thank you, Don, and I look forward to our next episode of Cinema Around the Corner. Mm -hmm.